Romans chapter 5. Be reading verses 12 through 21. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of one man's, that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this, for this passage of Scripture. Thank you, Lord, for the hope that it gives us. For the assurance of salvation for those who are in Christ. Lord, sear this truth in our hearts today. Speak through your servant, we ask, that you might be glorified in Christ, we pray. Amen. This whole section that I just read is concerned with the relation of the one and the many. The effect of the actions of the representative on those whom he represents. Here Paul is contrasting Adam and Christ. Really the only comparison between the two is that they're both representatives. Adam is a type of the one who was to come. This is seen really more clearly in Paul's, in an earlier letter by Paul, 1 Corinthians, in chapter 15, verses 21 and 22, he says, For as by a man death came, by a man also has the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. And then 23 verses down, same chapter, he says, Thus it is written, the first, Ad first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. 
and as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Paul comprehends really God's dealings with people under two, the twofold headships of the two Adams. There, in essence, there is none before Adam. Before Adam, he is the first Adam. There is none between Adam and Christ. Christ is the second man. And there is none after Christ. Christ is the last Adam. So you see these dealings of God under these two headships of Adam and Christ. Adam and Christ sustain unique relationships to man. And, and, and verse 22 there above uh, shows us that history and destiny are determined by these relationships to the, to the head. All who, are, all who die, die in Adam. All who are made alive are made alive in Christ. In his second letter, Paul said this in chapter 5, verse 17, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, I hope you have your Bibles open because we're going to really take a deep dive into this passage. But uh, first of all, just, I want, to note, want you to note the construction of the passage itself. Verse 12 is an unfinished comparison. The finished comparison, the finished part of that, is not until verse 18. In between, you have sort of two explanations, two parentheses or explanations, verses 13 to 14, ending with Adam, who was a type of the one to come, stressing the similarity between Adam and Christ. But then, though they are similar as representatives, these two representatives also have contrasts which are brought out in the second parenthesis of verses 15 to 17. With these explanations given then, Paul can now complete the thought that he started in verse 12, uh, starting in verse 18 through 21. With one man's obedience and its ramifications for those who are represented by that one man, Adam, and one man's obedience and its ramifications for those represented by that one man, Christ. So, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. Now, uh, the therefore is really makes the close connection between this passage and what just preceded it. I, I can never forget because my exegesis professor in seminary, Dr. Carson, would always say, whenever you see a therefore, you need to find out what it's there for. And it's there because it's looking back to what came before, in verses, particularly verses 9 through 11 of chapter 5. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from him by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You could, in fact, make the case that the therefore really goes back to, from the first chapter all the way through to, to the present, to, to this passage as well, because the theme of Romans is really the righteousness of God. 
And he says in chapter 1, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness that is by faith. Or, as it is written, those who by faith are righteous shall live. So, that's the theme. And it comes out here in this passage in Scripture. Now, the one man, the one man in, in chapter, in verse 12 here, is obviously Adam. And the account uh, given in Genesis chapter 3 is really the basis for this statement. And I, I think we should note that Paul obviously sees Genesis 3 as a literal happen, happening. Adam was a literal man who literally ate the forbidden fruit in the garden. And that sin entered through one man is really an integral element of the comparison upon which is built Paul's doctrine of justification. When he says it came into the world, sin came into the world, he refers to the beginning of sin in the human race. And the world there in that, in that verse, the world simply means the fear of human existence. It's true that Adam's sin had effects upon all of creation, but Paul is concerned particularly with the human race, the human existence. And then he says, and death through sin. And that's an allusion back to Genesis chapter 2 where God said to Adam, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And in 3.19, later on in chapter 3, after Adam eats of the forbidden fruit, and God calls him to account, and God says to Adam in 3.19, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So the first half of verse 12 here, the accent really falls upon the entrance of sin and death. Through one man, the entrance of sin and death through one man, and that in the second half then, the accent falls upon the universal penetration of death and the sin of all. The crucial question here is what is meant by because all sin. Well, back in the 4th century, a man named Pelagius had the view that Adam really set a bad example. And then everybody that came after him simply followed his bad example. That Adam's sin didn't affect the whole human race. It didn't affect Adam and his own corruption of his nature. It was simply a bad example. And every person after him comes into the world in the same way, in the same state as Adam with, uh, with uh, the propensity to obey God. But then we just, they just follow Adam's bad example. The problem, of course, with that view, one problem, of course, there are several problems, and, and, and it'll be... That view will be disproved in the context here, but the, one of the problems is death spread to all because all sin. But how do you deal with, in Pelagius' view, what does that mean for infants who die? They haven't followed Adam's example, and yet they died. So uh, we'll see that the context disproves that view. Verses 13 and 14, now he, he's going to give the explanation because he ended that... He ended that 
beginning of that comparison, he ended with, because all sin, but he, he couldn't finish it right then without giving an explanation here. And that comes in verses 13 and 14. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Now, the four indicates that he's explaining that last phrase, because all sin. But counted here is a word that means to charge to one's account. So, um, back before credit cards were uh, used, were developed or invented, if you were a carpenter, you had a carpenter business, you would go to the lumber yard and you would set up an account with the lumber yard, and uh, then you could go in there as often as you needed to and buy materials and say, just charge this to my account. And then at the end of the month, you would go in and write a check for that for that account. That's that's the idea here. It's charged to one's account. But here it's, he's saying it is not counted. It is not charged to one's account. Where there is no law, sin is not counted or charged to one's account. It's not regarded by God as a matter of individual guilt because there was no law. There was no expressed command to disobey. And that, that sets up verse 14, which says, Yet... Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even those, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. You see, you see the point Paul's making here. It's like, okay, if, if sin is not counted as individual guilt for the person, why are they still dying? You know, death still reigned over those who hadn't, who has, who haven't disobeyed a direct command from God. And that's the bearing that this has on the thought of verse 12, when it says, because all sin. So in what way did they sin? They didn't sin in the same way Adam did, he says, whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. In verse 12, the doctrine of particular significance to the argument that Paul is developing is that death came to all men not by reason of their own actual transgressions or sins, but because of their involvement in the sin of Adam. In other words, by reason of solidarity. That is, that Adam was a representative. And that's what, we, that's what it means when it says, in Adam, all die. So that, in some way, in the reason, by reason of solidarity, by reason of the fact that everybody after Adam is, comes into this world, in Adam, everybody comes into the world already a sinner. Because of the sin of Adam. That's the point Paul is making here. And that point is really vital to his whole argument because mainly he wants to demonstrate that people are justified, who are the people who are declared righteous, not because of actual righteousness which they do, but because they are in Christ. You see, that's 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 the comparison he, he is going to make here, and it's important. The verse contributes to the proof of the assertion in verse 12 that death penetrated all because they were involved in Adam's sin and sin in him and with him. In other words, when all the facts of the period before Moses, before the law came in or taken into account, the only explanation for the universal reign of death is solidarity in the sin of Adam. And that's what the phrase, because all sinned, means when Adam when uh, Paul uh, ends verse 12. 
And though both Adam and Christ are representatives, there are marked differences in how their actions play out. And that's what he gets to in the second part of this explanation, which is verses 15 to 17. He begins to contrast between Adam and Christ. But, and that's the clue, that is a contrast. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Now, you might notice that it's a it's an if clause. For if. And uh, there are several different kinds of if clauses in, in uh, Scripture. This is what's called... Uh, an if and it's true. So it could be translated, if it's the case that many died because of one man's trespass, and that is the case, that's, that's the point, it's if and it's true, that is the case. The one sin of Adam is the judicial ground and reason for the death of the many. That one sin of Adam. The scope of the many here really is the same as all men in verse 12 and in verse 18. He uses many here simply as the purpose of contrasting more effectively uh, the one and the many, or singularity and plurality. One and many. It was the trespass of the one, but the many died as a result. The contrast really is much more have the grace of God in this sentence. Much more have the grace of God. Paul recognizes the fact of judgment And there's no suggestion to the effect that it's ineffective. It works relentlessly. Many died. Many died through one man's trespass. But Paul also recognizes that grace comes into question here. Into into operation. And the abounding plus really is evident because the grace of God not only negates the operation of judgment, but abounds to the opposite. To justification and life. In other words... God isn't just declaring us not guilty. He's declaring us righteous. He's not only only taking away the judgment that was ours, but He's going farther and saying, you are righteous. You are declared righteous because you are in Christ. The emphasis is really placed on the greater achievements of grace. Notice the piling up of the expressions here. The grace of God which is really God's disposition to look with favor upon us, though we don't deserve it. That's that's grace, the grace of God. And then there's the free gift by the grace indicates that what is bestowed upon us is completely by grace. And I want to emphasize this this morning. It's completely by grace. We can't add anything to it. It's completely... By grace. The grace and the grace by which we receive the free gift of righteousness, that is the, that is what the free gift is. It's the free gift of righteousness is defined as that which is of Jesus Christ. That is his willing death on our behalf. And then verse 16. And the free gift is not like the result of one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift, following many trespasses, brought justification. Now there are 
There are three contrasts, really, uh, that he's bringing out in this verse. But there are several details before we can really appreciate the contrast. Judgment is really the judicial sentence uh, of God pronouncing judgment. And the character of that sentence is defined as condemnation. Condemnation. The judgment, in essence, would be you, you are disobedient. And the price for that is condemnation. In other words, the wrath of God. The de- death is the penal consequence for sin, but condemnation is the divine sentence which is pronounced upon it. And this sentence was from one trespass. Just one. One trespass. Only the trespass of Adam. All are under condemnation of God because of the one sin of the one man. And the free gift contrasts with judgment. The judgment brought condemnation, but the free gift brought justification, which is a declaration of righteous. We are declared righteous. And that's following many trespasses, contrasting with following one trespass. Just one trespass brought condemnation to all, but justification, declaration of righteousness follows many trespasses. Trespasses all of all people, all, all, all the people who are in Christ. In other words, the judgment which brought condemnation took into account simply the one trespass. In fact, the one trespass demanded nothing less than condemnation for all. Why? Because Adam represented all. But the free gift which brought justification is of such a character that it must take into account the many trespasses. In fact, it couldn't be the free gift of justification unless it blotted out all of the many trespasses. And, you know, by this we see the magnitude of God's grace. The immensity of His grace. The main point of this verse is that judgment and condemnation take into account only one sin of one man. And the whole human race is condemned. But the free gift and the declaration of being righteous takes into account the many sins. The sins of a multitude of people. How how amazing God's grace is. Verse 17 now. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So the particular emphasis here in this verse is the contrast between the reign of death and the reign of life. The reign of death by the one trespass of the one man and the reign in life of one Jesus Christ. Notice it says death reign. It doesn't say that the subject of death reigned in death. Death has sway over them. Death is the one that's reigning over them. And But the form used uh, on the other side of that, which, which uh, does, it doesn't say that life reigns, the form uses that the subject of life reign in these. Those who have received 
reign in life. They're representative exercising dominion in life. And the reason why they reign in life is that they receive. They receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. Now let me say that the word receive there enhances the thought expressed in the free gift. It does not refer to our believing acceptance of the gift, but to our being made recipients of the gift. I think that's important because uh, there's the common uh, a common view is that uh, uh, that life is the reward for our faith. But of course, Scripture teaches that faith itself is a free gift of God. So it's the fact that we are made recipients. We are regarded as passive beneficiaries of both the grace and the free gift in their overflowing fullness. I'm ho- I hope you're you're soaking this into your souls here. Uh, made recipients, the free gift. The free gift consists in righteousness. It's the righteousness of God which becomes ours. And the phrase, reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ, expresses the certainty and the security of the reign in life, really rather than its future aspect there where it says will. will. Uh, But it's talking about... The implication really is of the certainty and security that will continue forever and come into full realization in the future. It's it's, it's the, uh, as Pastor Paul often says, it's the already, but not yet. We have, you see, eternal life now. But we won't experience the full realization of all that means until we meet the Lord. Until he returns. And we are glorified. So now verse 18. This is, why he, this is where he kind of finishes up what he started in verse 12. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. This is really the summation of his doctrine which has been set forth from beginning of verse 12 to to this verse. The one trespass by which all died and fell under condemnation, of course, is the one sin of Adam of eating the forbidden fruit in the garden. But what is the one act of righteousness? Well, the sense in which a word is used in Scripture is determined by the immediate context. And one act of righteousness is contrasted with one trespass. Now in this passage, throughout this passage here, when the expression, the one, is used, it always refers to either Adam or to Christ. And when one, without the article, either to Adam or to his transgression. And we see here it's referring to this transgression, one trespass. This would lead us to expect that when one act of righteousness is mentioned, it is the righteousness of Christ. It's just who He is. It's His righteousness. It's it's the basis which leads to justification of life. Now you might be wondering about the all 
There, one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. Uh, so, is it Paul's practice to posit universal salvation? No, it's not. Second uh, Second Thessalonians, he he writes this. Speaking about the Lord's return, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And as we as he wrote in, in 1 Corinthians 15:22, as we read earlier, as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. So no, he's not positing universal salvation here. The context will demonstrate that the apostle is really dealing with, in in 1 Corinthians 15, where it says, As in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. He's dealing with resurrection to life. With those who are Christ, who belong to him, and will be raised at his coming. So the all of the second clause is restrictive, in a way that the all of the first clause is not restricted. In other words, it's, it's simply referring to the people whom they represent. Adam represented all men. But Christ represents those who are in Christ. Those who are His. And that doesn't include everybody. So... All who are condemned, and this includes the whole human race, are condemned because of the one trespass of Adam. All who are justified or declared righteous, and only those who are in Christ are declared righteous, are justified because of the righteousness of Christ. And then he goes on in verse 19, For as by the one man's disobedience, the many will be made sinners. So, by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So, again, verse 19 is really explaining more. Verse 18, though we have some new facets here, Adam, the sin of Adam is characterized as transgression in verse 14. It's, it's characterized as trespass in verse 15, 17, and 18. And now, as disobedience. And I think this indicates really that the fall of Adam was regarded by, by Paul as sin in all of its aspects. That is, sin in terms of our relationship with God. In our relationship with God, that means we are rebels to God. We have transgressed. We are rebels. We are enemies of God. And it also relates to how sin in our, relation, in our relationship to the law. We we are guilty. We have transgressed the law. We fall short of the Lord of the law. We've broken a clearly revealed commandment. And the third is sin in in its relation to ourselves. How sin affects us. The the corruption of our nature. That as we, as we saw in our uh, in our confession this morning, how it twists we, it twists us when we disobey. Now it says that many will be made sinners or constituted sinners. They were placed in the category of sinners. Those who are in Adam. Not only did death rule over them and not only did they come 
under the sentence of condemnation, but sinnership, if you will, sinnership itself really becomes theirs by reason of the sin of Adam. Again, the solidarity in the sin of Adam comes into play here. His involvement in disobedience, transgression, we were involved. You see, all, the whole human race was involved in disobedience, transgression, and trespass of Adam. In a variety of ways, really, in this passage, we were, we were really informed that the sin of Adam was the sin of all in solidarity uh, and is traced to that source of being in Adam. And, you know, we may not like that. It's like, well, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't vote for Adam as my representative. <laughs> you, you didn't choose your parents either. You know, I mean, uh, the, the fact is, that is the way it is. Adam was your representative, like it or not. And because of that, we, are, we were involved in solidarity with his sin. And in a variety of ways, this passage really shows that. And to attempt to escape that conclusion really is to ignore exegesis. Now, the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 25, asked the question, Wherein consisteth, consisteth the sinfulness of that estate whereinto man fell? And the answer is this. The sinfulness of that estate whereinto man fell consists in the guilt of Adam's first sin. And there, I use this reference of this passage we're dealing with this morning. The want of that righteousness wherein he was created and the corruption of his nature whereby he is utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite unto all that is spiritually good and wholly inclined to all evil and that continually. And the other two references are Romans 3, which comes just shortly before chapter 5. Romans 3, 10 to 19, and where, where Paul quotes the Old Testament saying, No one seeks after God. No one does good, not even one. And then the other, the other passage that he quotes is Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, where Paul says, As for you, you... You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. When you followed the desires of your heart and followed the prince of the power of the air who is now at work in the sons of disobedience, you were by nature, by nature, children of wrath. So he's saying, he's saying the same thing. We've been condemned because, because of the sin of Adam. We are by nature children of wrath. In other words, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. That is our nature before Christ. We are spiritually dead. And he says by one man's obedience, and the obedience of Christ here is stated to be the way in which we are made righteous. Now, please understand this. The obedience of Christ is the reason why we are declared righteous. The concept of obedience as applied to the work of Christ on behalf of believers really reaches its climax 
in the cross and the shedding of His blood. But obedience here has in view really the totality of the Father's will fulfilled by Christ. And this brings us really to the clearest focus of what, what's implied here in the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, in verse 15, and through the one man in verse 17, and one act of righteousness in verse 18. Just as God made a covenant with Adam there in chapter 2 in Genesis, it was a covenant of works. We call it a covenant of works. God said, you can eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat the tree the knowledge of good and evil, and they eat it, you will surely die. That was a covenant. God also made a covenant of grace with Christ. And that covenant also took place before the world began. I say that because Ephesians 1.4 says that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. So that covenant of grace was with Christ as the second Adam. And through him the many will be made righteous. Many are placed in the category of righteous persons by reason of our relationship to Christ. He is our representative. The same principle of solidarity that appears in our relation to Adam also appears in our relation to Christ. Just as the relation to Adam means that God imputed his disobedience to us, so the relation to Christ means that God imputes Christ's obedience to us. He imputes it to us. It's ours. Again, the involvement in the obedience of Christ is not that of our personal voluntary obedience or our subjective holiness. This would really violate the, the legal character of justification. The obedience of Christ is reckoned as ours. It's counted as ours. It's put into our ledger, ledger sheet as ours. With all that the term righteousness carries with it. The future tense here will be, it really indicates that this act of God's grace is being continually exercised and will continue to be exercised throughout future generations of mankind. And so he concludes here in verses 20 and 21. Now the law came, the law came in to increase trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The law is, of course, the Mosaic law. And it says literally that the law, really, literally it says that the law came in alongside. It's true that it came between Adam and Christ, but the precise thought is that it was complementary. It served the purpose of increasing trespass. In other words, that sin might be multiplied. Now, you might expect the opposite. You might think, well, if there's a law there, it may maybe keep people from sinning. But the language is explicit here, and Paul elaborates more fully if you read on in, in Romans chapter 7, starting at verse 8, that the, law, the, the more laws brought to bear upon the sinful heart, 
the more the heart is aroused to transgression. I, I remember before I was a Christian and I was in the Air Force in Illinois, just lush green grass all over that campus base, particularly in front of the building where I work. And, and uh, all along the sidewalks, you have these little signs every so often that says, don't step on the grass. And every time I'd see that, I'd want to go, <laughs> just step on it. And that's what, that's, what he, that's what Paul is saying. The law brings out the, the, the propensity to want to do it. It's like you, it's like you say to your, your child, you say, okay, you can go into these other rooms, but don't go in that room. You know what they're thinking? What's in there? I want to find out. <laughs> Yeah. So Adam's trespass was disobedience of an expressly revealed command. When the law came in through Moses, there was really a multiplication of that kind of transgression exemplified because there were multiple laws and commandments. And that really, uh, so he's, he, he speaks about the superabounding riches of God's grace at the end of verse 20, and that really brings up, points to verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The analogy uh, between the reign of sin and death on the one hand and the reign of righteousness and life on the other. But the analogy is really for the purpose of showing the total contrast at every point of the, of the parallel here. You have sin, death, condemnation in Adam. And you have righteousness, life, and justification in Christ. And what provides the antithesis to sin is the righteousness and obedience of Christ. Which is imputed to us. Again... Again, I urge you to take that. The obedience of Christ is imputed to you. And the goal is eternal life. It's a life that death cannot invade. A life that cannot be forfeited. It is eternal life. You don't have it for a couple of years and lose it. It's eternal. It wouldn't be eternal if you did. And it is through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul's without doubt really thinking of the exalted and glorified Lord. It's the mediation of the glorified Lord through whom the superabounding grace reigns. Now, There's a lot in that passage. But I want to just, I want to talk about its doctrine, of course. But how do you apply this? How do we apply it in our lives? First of all, you know, there is, there is the application of, of knowing the information. And it's important to realize that there are only two representatives. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. Everybody in the world is either in one of those categories. Either in Adam or in Christ. And I urge you this morning, if you have never put your trust in Jesus Christ, do it. Do it this morning. God God may be speaking to your heart right now. Because 
Until you do, you are standing under condemnation. The second, that's, a, that's an important application too, and I know some of you, some of you have children that are about, about that age, it's like, talk about this to your children. Encourage them to put their trust in Jesus as their only hope and trust in His righteousness. The second application here is for those of you here who, who might struggle with assurance of your salvation. And it's easy to do when we look at ourselves and say, well, yeah, I just don't, I don't measure up. I don't, I, I'm always, seem like I'm always sinning. I want you to own this truth for yourself here. See yourself as in Christ. That's your identity. You're in Christ. His obedience is your obedience. His righteousness is your righteousness. Your identity is in your union with Christ. Don't look to yourself for assurance. That will, that will tear us down every time. Look to your Savior. Look to the one who is perfectly righteous. And His righteousness is imputed to you. Now those of you who, who know, the, who know the, uh, the fact that you're in Christ and you have assurance of salvation, there's an application for you here as well. And that is glory! Glory in the superabundance of Christ's grace. For God's grace through the reigning Lord Jesus Christ. Glory in it. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this passage that you inspired the Apostle Paul to write. Thank you, Lord, for its wonderful truths, for the superabounding grace that is brought out. Thank you, Lord, for your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for showing your grace upon us by sending Him to live a perfect life, to come into this world not in Adam, but because of a virgin birth without sin, and completely live a righteous life and then take our sins upon himself on the cross and pay that debt that we owed. And that because of that, Lord God, you impute the righteousness of Christ to us. We praise you and thank you, Father. May we, Lord, may we live our lives in gratitude to You. May the, the effect of Your grace transform the way we deal with others, the way we live out our lives, knowing that our identity is in You. We thank You and praise You in Jesus' name. Amen.